Well, thank you. Uh, it's nice to take a break from grading exams, looking at last semester's evaluations, and come here to talk a little bit about uh, the Bush presidency. But I must tell you, I was looking yesterday at one of my evaluations, which we require students to make, and the student wrote, Professor, if I had but one hour to live, I'd like to spend it in your class. Well, I thought, I thought that was really great till I saw this little arrow at the bottom to turn the page. And the person wrote, because an hour in your class is like an eternity. <laughs> so I hope this is not going to be like an eternity for you. But I'm going to talk uh, about the president's leadership dilemma and how President Bush uh, addressed that dilemma successfully in term one, not nearly as successfully in term two. Now, every president, every modern president has a leadership dilemma. And that dilemma stems from change and continuity. The change, primarily, is the precedent, the enlargement of the office, by presidents, beginning probably with Jefferson and continuing right on up uh, through uh, Lyndon Johnson and Richard Nixon. Uh, in Jefferson's case, he expanded the political dimension of the presidency. He was our first partisan president. Uh, uh, Andrew Jackson expanded the presidency in terms of his use and threatened to use the veto and also by virtue of the fact that he's the first president in 1832 to claim a public mandate, the first president uh, when a majority of the electors were selected by direct popular vote. Obviously, Abraham Lincoln expanded the powers of the president uh, at the onset and during the Civil War. And President Bush turned to Lincoln's precedent uh, when he established military courts, tribunals, and uh, did some of the other things that uh, Lincoln had done to try to preserve the peace and protect the Union. In the 20th century, Theodore Roosevelt it was the first president to expand the public dimensions of the office the first president to provide a comprehensive program to Congress. Woodrow Wilson followed in Theodore Roosevelt's path. Franklin Roosevelt added the uh, role of manager of the economy, a role which President Bush now has to face today, whether he likes it or not, and whether he has the power to do something about it or not. Presidents uh, Kennedy and Johnson uh, certainly expanded the social dimension of the presidency, the civil rights area where presidents had to act. And so we have seen presidents enlarge the office and enlarge the expectations that we have of what a president should be doing when we run into difficulty. The second aspect of this has been uh, the way we campaign for the presidency. In modern days, which I will say from the 1970s on up, we've had two elections for the president every four years, one for the nomination and one for the general election. And those nominations are similar in one respect. People make a lot of promises. And now with modern technology, all these promises are recorded on videotapes. You can't deny that you said it. And they then provide the agenda by which the new president is judged within his first 100 days in office, and maybe first year in office. So precedent and promise have enlarged our expectations of the presidency. The continuity is in the Constitution. The powers of the president were defined pretty broadly by the framers of our Constitution, and with one exception, have not been redefined since then, at least uh, not in the form of constitutional amendment. I think the Supreme Court has uh, redefined them in terms of enlarged presidential powers, particularly in foreign affairs. Uh, but we still have Article II, safe and sound. And the only exception is the 22nd Amendment, which I think we can all see has limited the president's power in his second term and limited every president's power in their second term. 
So the leadership dilemma is simply this, that we expect presidents to do more than they have the authority and resources to do, and therein lies a problem. And every president faces that problem. Now, as I look back at the Bush administration, it seems to me that George W. Bush had four basic leadership dilemmas in his first term and three or four major dilemmas in his second term. So I'd like to address each of these. I think the first dilemma Bush had was the result of the controversial 2000 election. And he had to establish himself as president when about a third of the people, according to Gallup polls, thought that he had not won the election in a legitimate way, and many people were angry about that. And, of course, every new president, when that president comes in, has to grow in the office and try to reverse the negative stereotypes that accompany that president by virtue of the opposition's criticism and media highlighting of mistakes during the campaign. Now, we all, we remember what Gore's um, uh, stereotype was, that he was stiff, that he was artificial, that he embellished him, his own efforts, that he invented the internet and the like. And we remember uh, Bill Clinton's uh, when he ran, very bright, very articulate, uh, uh, very energetic, had a little problem with self-control. First it was food, it's always been sex, furniture, pardons, now it's money, you know, it's, it, 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 that's... So if you recall, when President Bush was first elected, he had really two negative stereotypes. One uh, was his verbal skills, and uh, that he made mistakes, and any time he did make a mistake, the press highlighted that mistake. Uh, we found out later that's because Frank Rooney of the New York Times, who was covering him, was writing a book on uh, Bush's uh, race for the presidency. You remember uh, the other stereotype was that uh, some people felt he wasn't, didn't have, well, let, let me put it to this way. In, it, the Republicans would say maybe he began his presidency without the knowledge, skill, and experience that his father had. Democrats would use a word uh, that starts with D, calling him not very smart. And that was reinforced. Remember, some reporter asked him something in the year 2000 to name foreign leaders in different places who were in the news, and he didn't do that correctly. I thought it was a very unfair question at the time. Ronald Reagan is viewed as a very strong president. He never remembered any names. There was that nice British lady. <laughs> and uh, the guy with a spot on his head. I mean, Tom DeFrank once told me, he was the White House uh, reporter for Newsweek at the time, he's now the Washington bureau chief for the Daily News, that he was one of the pool reporters when Reagan had a one-on-one -on -one meeting with the then president of Liberia, a man by the name of Samuel K. Doe, D-O-E, who lost, subsequently lost his life in the Civil War there. And President Reagan met with President Doe for about 20 minutes, and they had that joint obligatory press conference, and there were only four reporters present. And Ronald Reagan, who was one of the nicest men you'd ever want to meet, three times in 15 minutes to four reporters introduced and reintroduced President Doe, except each time he called him Chairman Mo. And uh, the, people, the people who were there didn't know whether Reagan knew who he was talking about. They thought he was talking to Mao, who had been dead for about 11 years, or what? But Ronald Reagan had a foreign policy that accelerated the end of the Cold War and certainly put us in a position, and we wouldn't say that he was naive simply because he didn't remember the names. Clinton would have remembered those names. Why am I so sure of that? You know, it's early in the morning. He's a graduate of Georgetown. <laughs> and according to our dean, we taught him everything he needed to know. Ethics was not required at that time. <laughs> All right, so Bush had to overcome this negative stereotype, and I believe he did. He had a very polished and professional transition. 
He went around the country making speeches, more so than other presidents did at the beginning of their presidency, always behind the seal, showing that he could go in depth on policy issues. And whenever a major decision was made, someone in the White House leaked out the fact that it was President Bush who made that decision. It wasn't Vice President Cheney. So I would say at the end of the first 100 days, President George W. Bush was doing well and had established himself in the presidency after that very controversial election. The next leadership challenge, of course, he had was 9-11, although that was preceded by something that would become a leadership challenge, and that was the Jeffords defection in the Senate and the fact that the Senate went under Democratic control. But 9-11, I think we'd all agree, was a major crisis. And whether you support or oppose President George W. Bush today, I think most of us would agree that in the 90 days following that crisis, he acted in a way which certainly enhanced his image. We gave him very, very high grades. He allowed our nation to grieve. He got an international coalition. We had the successful military operation in Afghanistan. His administration initiated a number of important bills, including the USA Patriot Act, the bailout of the airlines. Bailout has been a part of this compassionate conservative agenda for some time. The creation of the Transportation Security Agency and other legislation, which also resulted in a homeland security assistant in the White House and later supporting the Homeland Security Department. So I would say through December of 2001, President Bush, who was then very highly popular, what's his name, the conservative guy at AEI wrote a book, Frome wrote a book called The Right Man, and Bush was riding high. Now, I referred to the leadership challenge he had when the Democrats gained control of the Senate, and we know that our politics have become stridently partisan and ideological, and we knew that at that point the conservatives controlled the House and the liberals under Tom Daschle, soon to be Secretary of HHS, and the architect of Hillary Clinton's health care bill, modified under Daschle, he was head of the Senate, the majority leader, and while the administration went back to its domestic agenda, it did not have much success in getting both houses to agree on that agenda. Energy bill was passed in both houses, but it was a different energy bill. Bankruptcy bill was passed in the House, but they put on an abortion rider in the Senate, and that wasn't passed. And so by April of 2002, President Bush and Karl Rove decided that the only way the domestic agenda could be achieved is if President Bush used his bully puppet, his popularity, and his fundraising skills to try to achieve a Republican Senate in the 2002 election, and he did that, and I do think that contributed to the Republicans gaining control of the Senate, which provided the environment then to pass the domestic agenda. Now one of the ways he was able to get the Republicans to win in the Senate was to use the bully pulpit to basically articulate his war on terror, which he said had moved from now Afghanistan to Iraq, and they had weapons of mass destruction, and containment alone was no longer sufficient. And so beating those drums and beginning, as Bob Woodward tells us, to send out troops to be in a position to go into Iraq, the President had little choice 
but to move on the iraqi initiative before he turned to his domestic programs and we know that and on march nineteenth two thousand and three the military phase of the operation began and i think at that point seventy percent of the american people most republicans and many independents not as many democrats supported the president's initiative because as hillary rodham clinton has told us the information that she had at that time supported that and that's why she made the correct judgment and it was not an incorrect judgment and she refused to apologize for it i think that's at any rate um uh... we supported him and we had a very successful military uh... operation it only for only three days when one of our supply columns got lost uh... that there was any question about we didn't have enough troops so they weren't properly supported and all that and actually that wasn't all bad either um, because now in as we are witnessing today with a, a rise in unemployment a new industry was created on cnn fox and msnbc and that is hiring every retired general and colonel who was available and for three days we saw them all then we got to baghdad and with the exception of wesley clark they were all fired uh, but they got gainful employment for a few days and i think that's a good thing and then we remember on may first two thousand and three on the uss abraham lincoln behind the sign mission accomplished the president announced basically that we had achieved the military objective and uh, the war in iraq militarily had been completed it was at that point that the president's popularity began to decline and i think that was a product primarily of three factors number one the fact that we didn't find the weapons of mass destruction so his credibility uh... was um, questions about his credibility were raised number two uh... the news from iraq was not of military triumphs but of civil unrest of resistance we weren't treated as liberators as we were in kuwait uh... the uh... There was a lot of resistance and there was a lot of sectarian violence. And that changed public opinion and in fact the president's popularity approval rating went down a percent a month from about uh, June 1st, 2003 until really 2006 where it stabilized around 30 around 30%. And thirdly, of course, there were uh, there was a lot of anti-Americanism, which were dis which was displayed in the streets of many of the Arab countries, and also uh, by um, heads of nations that didn't really support our efforts, France and Germany and uh, countries such as that. In order to try to defend and maintain his popularity as we approached re-election, and that was really his fourth major leadership challenge, because his father wasn't re-elected, and he, of course, was successful in that, uh, the Republican-controlled Congress passed the Medicare restructuring bill with the drug benefit, uh, its major piece of domestic legislation other than the tax cuts during the president's first term. But there was some uh, problems even there among the conservative Republicans who were told that the cost would be 400 billion um, I th uh, over 10 years and then it came out a man by the name of William Foster who was an actuary for the Medicare system said no it was much higher than that and of course it has become even higher than that so Republican conservatives felt uh, that Bush was not leading them in the right direction they had also opposed 
the nationalizing of the Transportation Security Agency, and they were upset with the increase in size and particularly the great increase in the budget deficit that occurred during the Bush presidency. And this was to come and haunt the president after his re-election. Now, he was re-elected, and so that I would say, so as his fourth leadership dilemma, I think he was re-elected for three reasons. One, the Republicans did a very good job on John Kerry. Number two, they had a very good turnout operation, if you recall, called the 72-hour program, which had been four years in the making, a highly computerized turnout operation where they did something that people rarely do. They looked at some political science field research, and they discovered that personal contact of, let's say, 13 people will turn out one who otherwise wouldn't have turned out. This is one of those rare exceptions where political science, contemporary political science, became relevant to what's going on today. And he won thirdly because of character issues. Now, I've done some writing on this, and what I'm going to say now is very, very brief, but I'd be happy to enumerate and elaborate it a little bit later. I think all along, George W. Bush had wanted, in one way, perhaps unconsciously, I'm not sure, to show his father, prove to himself that he could be an even better president than his father was. Now, when his dad was president from 88 to 92, there were three public criticisms that were voiced about his dad. One was the so-called wimp factor. Remember, Newsweek had a headline on that in October 1988, that his father wasn't as strong and assertive as Ronald Reagan was. The second was that he lacked vision, particularly during the recession of the early 1990s, that it wasn't that he was a bad person, but he just didn't get it, the Democrats said. And we always have that little incident where he looked at this high-tech exhibit in Baltimore in December of 1991. He saw a scanner, a security scanner. It wasn't a grocery store scanner, but it was a security scanner. He said, that's neat. And the reporters who were following him included he'd never been in a grocery store and didn't see how that, so he just didn't get it. That reinforced the image. And thirdly, that he was inconsistent. He was not ideological. He was pragmatic. Read my lips, no new taxes. And then taxes went up in 1990, as they probably should have been, given the size of the deficit. But those were three criticisms. And I think if we look at President George W. Bush in his first four years, he was the very opposite of his father. He was very strong. For George W. Bush, actions have always spoken louder and more clearly than words. Two, he had a very clear vision. Some people today might say it's too simplistic, but in those days, you know, it was the axis of evil versus the good people. It was to try to give people their God-given human rights as human beings and to promote democracy around the world. And he believed that's what he was doing. I'm sure he still believes that about Iraq and perhaps about Afghanistan. So he has a clear vision. And thirdly, he's been very consistent with his policy in Iraq, with his policy so far in North Korea, which has been a very different kind of policy, and very consistent until the economic meltdown with his economic philosophy, which is pretty conservative, ownership society. It's the private enterprise system that has got us where we are today. And remember, he was a compassionate conservative before he became a compassionate socialist. So at any rate, what you had was a president who demonstrated strength, vision, and consistency. And people like presidents who are consistent. Even if they don't agree with them, they like to know which direction the president is going. 
I think that contributed to his re-election in 2004. So I would say of the four leadership dilemmas he had in his first term, three of them were clearly successes, and the one in Iraq was mixed. It was a military success, but it wasn't a full-fledged, certainly, success in achieving what he wanted to achieve, other than regime change. Okay. Now we go into term two, and this is a very different term, as we know, which comes out a very different way. Number one, he, and maybe Roe wasn't there at this point, misread the 2004 election. If I'm correct in my analysis, the election was all about terrorism, and we believe that, as many problems as we might have had with George W. Bush, he was more predictable and would fight terrorism more efficiently than Mike John Kerry. And if you looked at the exit polls in the 2004 election, they seemed to confirm that, that it was the war on terrorism and the so-called moral values where Bush scored higher. And in the domestic area, if you thought that Social Security was a problem, or you thought that health care was a problem, or even education, the vast majority of people who thought that was the number one issue supported Kerry. And so one of the first mistakes George W. Bush made was his statement. He felt emboldened right after the election, which he had obviously won, both the popular and the electoral vote. There was no controversy. He said, I've got political capital, and I'm going to use it. Remember he said that? And then I think it was John King asked him, what are you going to use it for? And he said, you know my agenda. Social Security reform, tax reform, a national energy bill, and the like. Now, the mistake was that that's not why he was re-elected. He was re-elected because we thought in a war, if the major issue was the war on terrorism, he was a better bet than John Kerry to fight it. That's why he was re-elected. So the first mistake he made, no president, no president since the 22nd Amendment has been passed, has more power the second term than he had in the first term. Because people, particularly in his party, are less dependent on him. <coughs> Moreover, we have seen second term problems with every second term president since the 22nd Amendment was passed. With Eisenhower, it was the U2 and Sherman Adams. Uh, with Nixon, of course, it was Watergate. With Reagan, it was Iran-Contra. With Clinton, it was the ladies. Uh, and Bush had, you know, the Valerie Plam affair and, uh, and a lot of the problems with regard to Iraq. So he started off on the wrong foot, and that, that hurt him. Number two, uh, the news from Iraq continued to be bad for another two years. And as a result, he was, he was hurt by not so much the decision, but his refusal to his rhetoric stayed the same, and it didn't accord with the pictures we saw on television. And so it became a kind of a hollow argument to Americans, and his popularity began to drop as a result of it. So one, he pursued the wrong agenda. Two, he maintained the consistency in, in Iraq when conditions that we saw merited adjustment and change. Thirdly, uh, a problem the, the, in, the, uh, second, in the second term uh, was that uh, the president's, the, the way the president dealt with Congress in the first term, which was, here are my goals. The House draft the legislation, the Senate pass it. Compromise is a dirty word, and you only use it at the end if you absolutely must. That kind of philosophy backfired among Republicans at the beginning of the second term. Do you recall how Dennis Hastert, not really a, a meek sort of guy, <coughs> 
criticized the Bush administration when FBI agents raided William Jefferson's office. You have no business up here. Do you remember the 2005 defense reauthorization bill when Senator McCain added an anti-torture amendment and the Bush administration said, we can't live with that? And finally, both Hastert and the Senate Majority Leader Bill First went up to the President and said, if you veto this bill because of that amendment, we can't sustain your veto because the majority of people support that amendment. And the White House backed down a little bit, and there was this big photo session in the White House, and McCain and Bush shook hands, and they had all these big grins. And then when Congress passed the bill and the President signed it into law, he said, you know, he said, one of the 702 times he said this in the first six years, Congress has no right to tell the executive branch how to execute the law, and therefore, any words to that effect are unenforceable. In other words, in your face kind of thing. And that really set off a lot of irritation among the Republicans. So we had really a Republican revolt against a President who had increased the size of government, who had greatly expanded the use of executive power, something we're going to hear about later. And this President had done things which Congress hated. There are two things Congress people hate. One is to be blindsided, and the other is not to be taken into account. Whether or not their policy is followed, members of Congress feel important because they're elected, and they want a seat at the table. They want to at least contribute to presidential policymaking. And I think the feeling was at the beginning of the second term that President Bush had not provided that for members of Congress. And it was the Republicans, the Democrats were already opposed, it was the Republicans who were beginning to jump ship on the President. And it was much easier to do that when the President couldn't run for re-election, when his popularity was in the mid-30s than when it was in the mid-70s, and when the President was a lame duck. And so we had that disruption, and we didn't have an improvement in those situations. And then, of course, later on we have the economic meltdown. So all of these suggest that, and I would argue to you this morning, that the very personal attributes which President George W. Bush wanted and did successfully demonstrate in term one, strength, vision, and consistency, became negative attributes in term two. The strength was viewed as a kind of bulliness, using force, where perhaps diplomacy should have or would have sufficed. The vision was viewed as simplistic, incorrect. You can't impose Western values on a non-Western society, which has no history and no culture of democracy and things like that. The rhetoric, as I said, seemed to diverge from what we were seeing, our perceptions of reality. And finally, the consistency was viewed as a kind of inflexibility. I'm not going to change. This is the way it is, and it's going to be like this throughout my administration. So the very attributes which helped President Bush in term one boomeranged and hurt him in term two, and his popularity declined at the 1% per month. And now, as we know, the President's popularity is very low, probably in the high 20s or low 30s, and it has been like that for the last two years, the longest, lowest period of any President. Of course, right after 9-11, he had the highest popularity for the longest period of any President. So we've really seen mood swings on the basis of what's going on, are things really working out the way we want. And as you know, we were, the United States, we were in a very sour mood, and continue to be now for good reason, 
in the election of 2008, three out of four people thought the country was going in the wrong direction. After mid-September, three out of four people believed that the economy was fair or poor, and they could offer evidence for that. So all of these things really have gone against the administration. And I think the president really failed his leadership dilemma in term two, where in term one, he succeeded it. So what is the Bush legacy? Well, at this point, it's hard to point to a very positive legacy of the Bush presidency, except, and I know this is going to sound a snide comment, and I don't really mean it as a snide comment, but I don't know how else to put it. He helped contribute to conditions that enabled us to elect our first African-American president. And what I mean by that is I'm not sure in normal times that Barack Obama could have been elected president of the United States, but these are not normal times, and I think that helped in Obama's election. And I would say, as I look at the Obama transition today, he looks to be doing exactly what George W. Bush did in 2000. And when Bush took over in 2001, everything the Clinton administration had done, every policy it made, to the extent that they could, would be reversed. Clinton didn't have a foreign policy that you could talk about as a doctrine. He was very pragmatic. The Bush foreign policy was very ideological. Clinton had a number of regulations that he passed at the end. The Bush people tried to reverse them. Andrew Card sent a memo around that everything has been put on hold until we have a time to examine it, which was fine. Obviously, the White House transition was certainly much better under George Bush, much more professional than it was under Bill Clinton. In other words, the Bush people changed everything. The Clinton was bad and Bush was good. They were elected. They changed. And that's part of our democratic values. Well, today I would argue that everything Bush has done, or most of the things that President Bush has done, both in tone and in substance, are going to be changed by the new administration. During the campaign, Barack Obama complained about wanting to change, and he not only wanted to change policy, but he wanted to change politics. And by that he meant try to tone down the strident, ideologically oriented partisan rhetoric. And I do think that that plea and some of the appointments that he's made now are an attempt to forge a kind of bipartisan coalition on basic needs of the country. Bush was a neoconservative, certainly in foreign policy, and fairly traditional conservative, except for the debt dimension in domestic policy. And I think Barack Obama is going to be – Barack Obama is anti-ideological. He's not – he may be a liberal at heart, but he's not a liberal at mind. And he's going to govern from the middle, not from the left, and certainly not from the right. He's going to be very pragmatic and try to be progressive. And where President Bush showed, certainly in the second term, consistency to the point of inflexibility, I think President Obama, when he becomes president, will be very adaptable. Where Bush wanted to pursue his principles and his policy without compromise, except for the No Child Left Behind legislation and the last year, where the economic conditions have forced him to compromise on a stimulus bill and may force him now to compromise his principles on the bailout of the automobile people, since that failed last night. Where is he – Obama's compromise is basically what he's all about, finding a common middle ground, finding a consensus, and building incrementally on that consensus. Where Bush 
tended to be much more unilateral and the white house was very closed obama has is much more into multilateral diplomacy at home and abroad he's uh... where bush uh... in his white house and his cabinet surrounded himself with true believers obama has surrounded himself with uh... people with experience and with substantive knowledge and the real problem he's going to have is is keeping them all on the same wavelength because they're all very independent thinkers and they all uh... probably many of them have big, big egos and uh, he's going to have to try to rein them in bush didn't have those problems when people fell off the reservation first they were warned and then they were fired be it colin powell uh... or uh... christy todd whitman or paul o'neill for president bush as i said actions always spoke louder than words um, President uh, Obama is going to put more emphasis on talking and negotiations and reaching a consensus and compromise. So I think what we are going to see is, an, and we frequently do see this, uh, a new president coming in and thinking that the old president screwed things up and he's got to behave in a very, very different manner if he's going to be successful. We don't know if he's going to be successful. So what are the lessons, finally, that we learned from the Bush experience? Well, I think uh, a major lesson, lesson to be learned is that you have to adopt your views to changing situations. Secondly, I think you have to adopt, change your rhetoric when the realities that people are seeing on television, when their perceptions are very different from what you said that they might be. Thirdly, you really need to surround yourself with the best minds and not be so insecure that you don't feel that you can handle a complex argument, that you can deal with ambiguity. Um, it's true that the press is going to pick apart the Obama administration as it picked apart the Clinton administration. But still, the, the be-all and end-all are the conditions on the grounds that we face. And if those conditions go sour, you've got to try to address them, even if it means you have to change your policy. And one very, very important lesson to learn is that presidents always run into trouble when they personalize policy decisions. That's the worst thing, because once you personalize a decision, your ego is involved in it, you become more resistant to change, and uh, be it uh, uh, what happened in Watergate, or what happened in Vietnam, or what happened in Iraq, personalizing public decisions is not a good thing. Now, one of the criticisms of Barack Obama is you know that he's kind of an elitist and I certainly think that if you looked at the people he appointed that would be reinforced uh, but the other thing about Obama and this is where he really differs from uh, both uh, George W. Bush and especially from Bill Clinton he's not particularly emotive you know he, 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 he'll listen to you but it's like Bill Clinton if he saw you know, people were in bad conditions, he'd get a tear at the right time in the right spot, and by the, the end he'd give you a big hug if you were a woman, and, uh, and I'm sorry, if you were a person, and he, and you feel that, you know, he really understands my problem. Here's the difference with uh, Senator Obama. Senator Obama is more the professional analyst. I'm sorry to tell you of cancer. Now, here are three ways we can treat it. And I think it's, he's going to be distant a little bit, and he will be accused of being elitist, which I think he is. Uh, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, as long as I'm considered part of the elite. Uh, <laughs> but I, I think you're going to see a very different kind of presidency because of the perception of the failures of George W. Bush in his second term. So let me stop at this point. We have about 20 minutes for questions, comments, rebuttals, or jokes. <laughs> and I steal jokes, you know, so please. Yes, sir. 
I really felt that one of the most important things about the Bush presidency was the massive success of his campaign of intimidation of dissent. Anybody who disagreed with him on anything, whether it be Iraq or domestic policy, was anti-American. And the press, as has been documented in studies, totally caved in. In 2003, news consisted of Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld said, a Bush administration figure said, there was no effective dissent except for the very possible exception of that elitist network PBR. Fox News was 100% a subsidiary of the Bush White House and the RNC. And anybody, we saw Daschle and other prominent Democrats savage as being unconcerned with the safety of the American people. We saw anti-war movement people investigated as potential enemy combatants. And we saw a pall of fear imposed on the country, separating the true believers who were with Bush from everybody else. I understand what you're saying. I didn't quite hear the question. The question is, do you agree that that was an important part of his legacy? I think we as Americans have a great deal of difficulty during national security situations expressing criticism. I think that was true during the Second World War. It certainly was true at the outset of the Vietnam War when Nixon used the same tactics. And so did Lyndon Johnson. I can't remember what he called William Fulbright, but it wasn't nice. Nervous Nelly or something like that. So I think during times of national security crisis, and at least initially, the president has an advantage. I do think that certainly in the 2004 election and in the 1988 election, both Republican presidential candidates wrapped themselves in the flag and criticized criticism of the United States and of the initiatives that were going on at that time. And frankly, we see a little of that even now with the economic meltdown. People who might be very much opposed to these huge bailouts being quiet and caving in to the crisis of the moment. So I think that I don't disagree with what you're saying. I might not use the same language. But I think that in any initial crises, there tends to be a reaction to negative views of the presidency because the president is the leader. He's the father. He's the commander in chief. He's the national security provider. The second problem we have is that presidents, at least initially, have much more access to and control over information than everybody else has. So one of the things that the administration does is they have the argument, if you knew what I knew, which I can tell you, then you wouldn't take this time. I think there was some of that. I think presidents do do that. I don't recall during Bosnia or Kosovo whether we saw that kind of criticism. We certainly saw it in Somalia when things went bad and the mission changed from humanitarian aid to democratization during the Clinton administration. So while the Bush administration, it is true, and the Republicans used the card of patriotism to mute as much as they could dissent. And while I think Attorney General Ashcroft and Gonzales implemented the Patriot Act in a very, very harsh way, I don't see that as 
unique to the Bush administration. I see that as a constant problem in a democracy. It's very hard to maintain a democracy during crises, particularly national security crises. Yes, sir. First of all, two distinct points. One, it sounded as though you might be agreeable to the Oliver Stone take in terms of W and his effort to work out a relationship with his father, that sort of thing, which is seen to me. I'm assuming you have seen the film. I have not seen the film, but I've seen the president for eight years. Right. Which is enough. I don't have to see a movie. No, no, but I was wondering whether you were in agreement with the Oliver Stone. I don't know. Frankly, I don't have a lot of faith in Oliver Stone. I don't think Lyndon Johnson is responsible for the Kennedy assassination. So I don't tend to go to Oliver Stone movies or Mel Gibson for that matter. In this case, you ought to give it a try. It sounds like you're on the same wavelength here. The other one is a matter of puzzlement for me, admittedly coming from a left liberal point of view. But when it came to the issue of national security with the Kerry Bush election, I could never figure why people thought of Bush with his great service with the Alabama Air National Guard versus somebody who had actually served in a combat situation in spite of the efforts to shoot that down. Nonetheless, I think nobody of significance thought that Kerry was not somebody who had experienced combat. How did the electorate come up with the idea that somehow Bush was a better national security person in terms of, quote, experience than Senator Kerry? Well, I think, first of all, the swift vote Veterans for Truth did a thing on Kerry, and Kerry didn't respond quickly enough to that. Number two, the Republicans have always been viewed as stronger on national security than the Democrats. Democrats are viewed, for whatever reason, as weak, and Republicans are viewed as strong. And thirdly, Bush had acted strongly after 9-11 and up until the outbreak of the war in Iraq. I think he enjoyed basically public support. So I think it's a, you know, when we have perceptions towards the parties, those perceptions are very, very hard to change, and each party tries to feed into the more positive aspect of its perception. And the Bush people believed in 2004 that the only way the president would be reelected was if national security was the principal issue because people tended to give him good grades. And I think, I believe, and I may be wrong about this, that certainly the election, when a president is up for reelection, the election, despite whoever he's running against, is an up or down vote on that presidency. When Jimmy Carter ran in 1980, we voted down. When Ronald Reagan ran in 1984, we voted up. When George Bush ran in 1992, we voted down. When Bill Clinton ran in 1996, we voted up. So I do think that the second election of any president is a referendum primarily on his administration. We were not in an economic crisis. We had not had another terrorist attack. He had acted resolutely. He didn't win by a hell of a lot. The country was still divided, but more people sided with him than opposed him. That's the only way I could answer that question. Yes, ma'am. I'm wondering if the McCain-Obama election, whether that was another referendum on Bush or on Palin. No, I don't think it was a referendum on Palin. 
you know, she was a big boom uh, to the uh, real, to, you know, the Washington stores here, and we hadn't <laughs> suffered nearly the kind of unemployment that other uh, stores have suffered. I, I mean, really, it was great. Um, I think it was it was two things. It was a negative vote against the Bush administration when a president is, uh, you know, in the uh, high. Th in the high 20s, low 30s for two and a half years, he's very unpopular and people don't like him and they want something very different. And of course McCain was running against Bush, as, as was Obama. Um, I don't think any Republican could have been elected given the economic meltdown after mid-September. I think it's as simple as that. I think that uh, Obama won, won because uh, more people identified themselves as Democrats in 2008 than they did in 2004. He gained about a 9% uh, advantage in partisan identification, which is very important. Uh, number two, he won because conditions were very bad. When economic conditions are bad, you blame the party that's been in control of the White House, which was the Republicans. Uh, and uh, number three, I think uh, Obama won because unlike 2004 when the Republicans had a great turnout mechanism, the Democrats had it in 2008, and it wasn't the turnout on election day, it was the 30% turnout before election day that mattered. Yes, sir? Behind, I've heard it said that behind the veil of the White House, I've heard it said that behind the veil of the White House, might, behind the veil of the White House that uh, Bush may have been somewhat of a prop up as opposed to his own man. I don't know if that's true or not, but how would you assess the people that surrounded him? In the Cheney administration? <laughs> oh. In the first term versus the second term. Well, many of them were the same people or their clones. And many of the people that moved up in the second term were in the position of deputies during the first term, Dan Bartlett, uh, for Karen Hughes, uh, Ken Melman was the uh, the political guy under Karl Rove, and he ran the helped run the second term re-election campaign. Josh Bolton had uh, been a deputy, and then he was the OMB director, and then moved over. So one of the things the president did not do was bring in a lot of new people. He brought in people who had served him, who had worked hard, and for the principal criteria of this administration had demonstrated their loyalty. They were on board. They knew the direction the president wanted to go. The president surrounded himself with like-minded people. I do not know whether these people made decisions which the president accepted or whether they knew what the president wanted and they believed the same thing. Um, it, it seems to me that there was, I, I agree that we can use the term group think, certainly in national security policy, to describe the people around the Bush presidency, but I don't know if he was a prop or the real thing. I just know that they all moved in the same direction. And if they didn't, they were pushed off. Yes, sir? Uh, you did invite jokes. Yes, absolutely. Let me get my pen out. Uh, go on. I don't know how many people remember the occasion of Ronald Reagan's inaugural party for which Little entertained. He took on two personas, one as an interviewer, one as the new, newly elected inaugurated president. And he said, Mr. President, you've said that you're going to cut taxes, increase defense spending, and balance the budget. Can you tell me how you're going to do that? And Reagan replied, oh, it's really very simple. I'll keep two sets of books. Now, I've been a long-time Republican, and I've changed my affiliation to Independent because I'm dissatisfied with both political parties. I've been convinced for a long time that the greatest threat to the United States is not a foreign military power and not terrorists, but our own fiscal irresponsibility. I have seen our national debt balloon under the Bush administration. He inherited actually blockade from the you know, Clinton administration, which uh, may have been just a temporary and fortuitous turn of events for that 
particular president. Nevertheless, we have these problems. And I think my fundamental question, I'll finally get to the question, is about the philosophy of the man. We have observed a president who certainly has been consistent. He certainly has been strong. But he has also raised questions in my mind about his underlying principles as a president, not of all the people, but of a particular subset of the people of the United States. His first threat to veto anything, as I recall correctly, was the Dubai Ports deal. I found that very strange. I found that very strange that he would take such an active role in that particular issue. His first real veto, I believe, was stem cell research. Now, the Bush legacy will live on. Whether it's good or bad remains to be seen. We can't predict today how good he's going to be seen by historians 100 years from now. The fact of the matter is that the United States has been living in, in my opinion, a delusion. The world's most richest country. We're living on borrowed money. And it starts at the top. We need leadership which explains the fact that you don't spend beyond your means. We've been doing this over and over again. And the full faith and credit of the United States will become meaningless when we cannot afford the interest rates, which are inevitably going to go up, I think, on our debt. Anyway, my question for you is, could you speak to the philosophy of the president and why it is he seems so willing to let the ends justify the means? All right. I see that question as a parallel to the last question. And that is, to what extent does Bush follow his advice? Remember, Dick Cheney said Reagan taught us deficits don't matter. And as long as we keep the percentage of the deficit at a certain level to the gross domestic product, we'll be okay. And I think that what you had in the Bush administration was each time ideology, until the bailout, conflicted with what was going on, ideology won. It won initially in the national security realm. And it didn't win on the farm bill. It didn't win on the Medicare bill. It certainly won with respect to presidential powers, which we're going to discuss later. And I think that Bush was not an economist. He invented the term fuzzy math. And I think his math was fuzzy. And I think he always justified the increased deficit as necessary to fight against terrorism. And now necessary because of the economic meltdown. That's really my answer, except I've got to end with a story, because you began with a story. I have two stories here. One, when John Kennedy was interviewed at the end of the first 100 days, the reporter asked him, what surprised you the most? And Kennedy said, without any length of time waiting and saying, I don't have to think about that, Kennedy said that things were as bad as I said they were during the campaign. After the Obama election, a reporter asked Obama, he said, when you started running in 2006, the economy wasn't this bad. We hadn't lost as many people in Iraq. Things hadn't been so bad. Now you're president-elect, and things are really bad. Do you really want it? And he said, well, I'll have to think that over. We have time for maybe one last question. Yes, sir. Can you speak to the great dichotomy between how many times they've been wrong on numerous issues, and perhaps even outside of the law, and their unbelievable push to expand presidential powers? I think that's a question that we're going to debate later on in this program. So, you know, every administration makes mistakes, and every administration does things that some people like and other people don't like. 
I think this administration has become very unpopular, and I think the comments that have been made prior to the questions tonight, uh, this morning, suggest that this is not a pro-Bush crowd sitting here at the moment. I don't know why, but I just have that feeling at the moment. Uh, but I, I, it does seem to me, and one of the things that I think you're going to see changed, there are two things you're going to see changed in the Obama administration. One, there's going to be much less of the exertion of executive power and the exercise of significant executive orders uh, that we saw in the first term and maybe even the second term of the uh, Bush presidency, uh, cooperation and consultation with Congress rather than circumventing the Congress is certainly going to be the initial mode of the Obama administration and you're going to criticize him because things are slow and he's made compromises and the policy change is not as great as perhaps it should have been. So I think that's one thing that's going to change and I think he's going to be a much more um, uh, a president who's going to do a few things different. He's going to, he and his people will consult more Two, he's going to use the bully pulpit much more effectively because uh, he sees power and rhetoric. And number three, uh, that list of what, uh, three to ten million websites is now being maintained by a 503C group which will use that to activate um, support for the initiatives of the Obama administration. He's not, he's you know, he's got a great organization there and he's going to be alerting his people and building support up. He's also talked about transparency. And uh, transparency is great in a democracy, but um, sometimes you don't look so good uh, when things, and I think he'll begin with much more transparency than he's going to end. So maybe I should end on, on that note. Thank you very much.